of it. First Samuel chapter 15. Last week we started our study of this chapter and we saw where God commanded King Saul to utterly destroy the Amalekites. He said, I want you to destroy all the men, all the women, all the livestock, their king Agag. But instead of King Saul completely obeying, here's what he did. He kept King Agag alive in the best of the livestock. And we saw that because of that, his sin, he had consequences. He lost, an in, he lost his influence and, and then he grieved the heart of somebody that loved him. And that was Samuel. If you didn't listen to that message, you can go back on our podcast and, and catch up. Now we're going to take off in the story where, where God told Samuel, go and confront Saul about his sin. And we're going to study how Saul responded to Samuel's confrontation. The title of the message tonight is in the form of a question. What kind of sorry are you? If you're a parent, a grandparent, a teacher, you just spend time with kids in general you have no doubt confronted your child or a student at some point about something they did that was silly or, can I say it, stupid or even sinful. And you've probably seen all different versions of sorry when you confronted them about their actions. There's, I wrote down a few. There's the I'm sorry I got caught kind of sorrow. There's the it wasn't me kind of sorrow. There's the, why are you so mean to me kind of sorrow. There's the, it was his fault kind of sorrow. There's this one, I hate living here kind of sorrow. My son's got this one down, negotiating their way out of trouble kind of sorrow. There's the act sorry until mom settles down kind of sorrow. There's the cry really hard and act really sad kind of sorrow. If I went around the room tonight, I think you could probably add to the list, but here's the truth we can all agree on. There's a right kind of sorry, and there's a wrong kind of sorry. The Apostle Paul writes about this to the church of Corinth, and he brings up two versions of sorrow, particularly over our sin, and he labels them as this, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Look at these verses. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. you see that? It didn't bring him joy that they were sorry, but they were the right kind of sorry. For you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us and nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. That's 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10. I'm not going to explain the entire context of those verses, but to summarize, here's what Paul, what Paul is saying. There are two kinds of sorrow, and they both lead to separate things. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, and world, worldly sorrow leads to death. In other words, it's possible to be confronted by your sin, to be sorry for your sin, but to be the wrong kind of sorry for your sin. No, it's possible for your pastor to stand up here last Sunday night and preach about the agags that you're holding on to, to, to be pricked in your heart about those, even come to an altar and be sorry about those, but yet to walk out with the wrong kind of sorrow. You understand that? Here's what I'm saying. Just because you come to an altar doesn't mean you're the right kind of sorry. Any more than when my son apologizes doesn't always mean he's the right kind of sorry. And, and so what we're going to do tonight is evaluate what kind of sorry King Saul was. Spoiler alert, he was the wrong kind of sorry. He exhibited worldly sorrow when he was confronted about his sin. And my hope is that we'll study this text tonight, this narrative tonight, and it'll serve kind of as a mirror for our lives because I want you to see if you can identify any of these indicators of worldly sorrow in your own life. 
I hope that through the Holy Spirit, you've identified the agag in your life. One of our deacons prayed this morning something I thought was wise when he was praying for this sermon tonight. He said, God, uh, help the Holy Spirit to bring the things to our mind that we can't see ourselves. In other words, he was saying, help the Holy Spirit or have the Holy Spirit help us see the sin that we can't see in ourselves. Help, uh, Lord, have the Holy Spirit help us see the sin that we're unwilling to recognize in ourselves. Lord, can the Holy Spirit help us to see the sin that we're, we just gotten used to in our life? And so I hope that last week served that purpose, but I hope that this week that you'll understand that identifying it and being sorry about it is not what will guarantee repentance. It's identifying it and then being the right kind of sorry about it that will lead to repentance. And so that's what we're going to study in Saul's life. Five indicators of worldly sorrow. Here's the first. Worldly sorrow is denying the reality of your sin instead of accepting the reality of your sin. Look at verse number 12 of chapter 15. And when Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel saying, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set him up a place and has gone about and passed on and gone down to Gilgal. Now get the sense of this. Here's what's happening. Saul just went on with life. He did what he did. He kept Agag. He kept the best of the livestock. He just set him up a ranch in Carmel. He's gone about. He's passed on. He's went to Gilgal. It's almost like he's going on just pridefully, delusionally almost, like he did nothing wrong. His denials revealed even more in the next verse. Look at verse 13. And Samuel came to Saul. And Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Can you get this in your mind? Here comes Samuel onto Saul's property, and Saul says, Sam, brother Sam, so good to see you, Pastor Sam. He's just overcompensating. He said, let me clear off the spot and just say, blessed be the name of the Lord. I have kept all the commandments of the Lord. Pastor Sam, so good to see you. Come hug me, man. I'm the kind of guy that keeps the commandments of the Lord. Overcompensation is a sign of self-denial. And Samuel knew that. It's kind of like people that come to church, say amen in the preaching, give in the offering, serve in various ministries, sing in the choir, sing a special, teach a class, greet at a door, perform the commandments of the Lord on Sunday, but they go home every Sunday night back to their agag and live with it all week long. They come back the next Sunday, perform the commandments of the Lord, wipe their hands clean, and they go back Monday through Saturday and live in a false reality again. That's their Christian life. Samuel confronts Saul about this false reality that he was willing to tolerate in his life. Look at verse 14. And Samuel said, what meaneth in this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Samuel says, you kept the commandment of the Lord. Then what is that sound that I hear? That don't sound like you, you kept the commandment of the Lord fully. Hey, buddy, I can hear the, ev- the evidence. You're not fooling anybody but yourself. You see, people live in denial over their sin, and they overlook some of the most obvious proofs. Matthew Henry put it this way. It is no new thing for the plausible professions of hypocrites to be contradicted and disapproved by the most plain and undeniable evidence. Many boast of their obedience to the commands of God, but what mean their indulgence of their flesh, their love of the world, and their neglect for holy duties which witness against them? In other words, you can live in a false reality all you want, but your life will eventually tell on you. And what you think you're covering up, everybody can clearly see. It reminds me of a TV show that that I watched that exposed the most disgusting things people encounter every day in the United States of America. 
And, and this particular episode, the reporter was visiting hotels that people stayed in. And he was doing a black light test in hotels. <laughs> and he, you know, like the purple glow illuminates all the, the germs and stuff and the stains and all those things. And so the reporter randomly found an older couple sitting in the, the lobby of the hotel and asked if they would, they would you know, participate with him in this experiment. Can I, can I give your room a black light test? This is what we're doing. And they sadly said, yes, that would be great. And so I'll be on TV. And so they, they go to their room and, and they turn on the lights in the room and the room is spotless. Like it's like the maid just went in there. The, the sink appears to be, you know, glistening and the toilet's glistening and, and the carpet has just been vacuumed and the beds have just been made. And then the, the guy turned off the light and turned on his black light and there were spots everywhere. I mean, stains everywhere in the carpet and the walls, the desk, the bathroom, everywhere exposed to be filthy. And the lady, the old lady in the room, you know what she did? She started screaming. And you know what she is screaming? Turn the lights back on. Turn the lights back on. Turn the lights back on. And so he went, he turned his black light off, turned the lights in the room back on. And you know what she said? If I'm lying, I'm dying. She said this, oh, that's better. Question, was it really better? The stains were still there. The couple could no longer see them, but that didn't change the reality of the stains' existence. The word for that is this, denial. Denial is turning off the black light in effort to, to, to make the stain of our life and our sin disappear. It's coming to church and going just like this. Now, I know you don't do it, but we do it in our heart. It's saying, turn it off, be quiet, move on. Don't talk about that. I got to find a church don't talk about sin. I don't want to hear about Agag. I don't want to hear about the Amalekites. Turn off the light. Oh, that's better. Whew. Church is over. That's better. Monday through Saturday, the light's on. Oh, that's better. Come back to church, get under the black light of God's word. and say, oh, oh, turn that off. That's denial. And that's an indicator of worldly sorrow. When you're unwilling to accept the reality of your Agag. Here's the second indicator, shifting blame for your sin instead of taking responsibility for your sin. Look at verse 15. And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. Did you see who he said had brought them? Not him, they. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. He took credit for the ones that were destroyed and he blamed the others for the ones that remain. And by the way, we are all hardwired to do the same exact thing. It started with our first mother and father in the Garden of Eden. Whenever they took of the forbidden fruit, Adam. And Adam said it was her. Eve. And she said it was a serpent. And you can see blame shifting all throughout the pages of Scripture. We say things like this. I know it was wrong to lose my temper. I know anger gets the best of me, but that's all I saw growing up. I know it's wrong to rob God of his tithes and offerings, but I don't make that much money and my bills are stacking up. I know I shouldn't cheat at school, but I'm under so much pressure to get good grades. Blame just comes out in our apologies. I know it's my fault, but if you hadn't. Hey, I'm sorry, but you should be too. It's not just me. Okay, so I messed up, but it was based on what you said first. Try saying this and this alone. I have 
sinned. Try saying that in your marriage. Try for once in the heat of an argument saying this, I'm sorry. But, nope, just say, I'm sorry. Say, I have sinned. Hey, young people, practice that with your parents. Instead of pointing fingers back at them for what they did to you or won't let you do, or or pointing fingers at your teacher or at your coach or at your employer or any, just say this, I messed up. It was me. Yeah, but you don't know the home I'm raising. It don't matter. If you sin, you sin. And you take the blame for that. If you don't, it's an indicator that you're not really sorry as far as godly sorrow, and that won't lead to repentance. Here's the third thing, minimizing your sin instead of realizing the seriousness of your sin. Look at verse 16 through 20. Then Samuel said unto Saul, Stay, and I will tell thee what the Lord has said to me this night. And he said unto him, Say on. And Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, this is a whole other message and I could preach it, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed thee king over Israel? And the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, didst fly upon the spoil, and didst evil in the sight of the Lord? And watch what Saul said unto Samuel in response, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and I have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and apart... Agag, the king of Amalekites. And of others, he destroyed the Amalekites. Did you pay attention to how I did that? Try it again. And Saul said in Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and I have gone the way which the Lord sent me. And I brought Agag, the king of Amalekites. And I utterly destroyed the Amalekites. What he did was he made a big deal about what he did right, and he made a small deal about what he did wrong. I did this and I did this and I did this. Oh, I know I did this. But I still did this and I did this and I did this. And we know we're minimizing our sin when, when we sandwich our sin with good things that we've done. Spouse confronts you about something. Oh, it's not all. You say always. You say every time. But I did this. Oh, I know I did this, but then I did this. And, and, and preaching confronts you right where you're at. And so immediately in your mind, you begin to minimize the conviction in your heart by saying, yeah, but I'm here for this and I do this and I do that for God. I know I'm not great at that, but I still do this and I do this and this. Are you following me? See, here's what we say a lot. Our way of minimizing our sin is we, is we say things like this. It's not that big of a deal. I think I told you this before. I was watching a show called Hoarders. The reruns are still, are still playing. And I suggest, men, that you watch it with your wife. Because when you watch it with your wife, she realize how much of a slob you're not compared to them. <laughs> I know you're comparing yourself with like the junior high team, but it's still a strong technique. See, I'm not that, Jenny. But what's crazy is they, they, they do this documentary of, of the hoarder and, and, and they go into their house. And man, if you've ever seen it, it's crazy. Their car is just overflowing with stuff. Their garage is overflowing with stuff. Their cabinets are overflowing. So you can't even see countertops. There was one episode where I watched where, where, where kids were tripping and falling just trying to make it to the bathroom. Honestly, a true hoarder, it becomes very, very unhealthy, very unsafe for the family. And so they go and try to have these interventions, right? And, and, and it never fails. They, they interview the mom. Sometimes they interview the dad or the husband or the wife or the kids or the grandkids or the grandparents, whatever the case might be. And they ultimately get to the hoarder and they interview the hoarder. And it seems like this happens all the time in these intervention type shows. But especially hoarders, 
They say, hey, your wife has said this, your husband says this is the opinion of your kids. So, you know, the experts are saying this. If you don't fix it, it's going to end up being like this. And you know what they always say? I don't see what the big deal is. Like, why is everybody overreacting? It's just a few things. It's my stuff. It's no big deal. And here's what I found with Christians. They got piles of junk in their life. Piles. Overflowing in the secret places. Overflowing sometimes even in the public places. Their wife says, yeah, it's there. Or their husband says, yeah, it's there. Their parents say, yeah, they have that. Their, 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 their kids say, yeah, they have that. If we interview the pastor, you'd say, yeah, I've unfortunately seen that in their life. But then God confronts them with their sin. A Samuel in their life confronts them about their sin. And they say this, get off my back. Why are you so pushy? It's no big deal. You're overreacting. That's called minimizing your sin. And when God sends someone graciously like a Samuel in any form or fashion to confront you about your sin, and that can be in the form of a spouse, a parent, a teacher, a a, a mentor, a pastor, anybody. Listen, please listen closely. Don't don't get prideful about that. Don't try to just 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 talk him down. Don't don't try to try to just just diminish it and minimize it. That is worldly sorrow at its best. And by the way, while I'm on it. If if you don't have people confronting you a lot about things, that's not a good thing. It means you're not very approachable. Or it means that you're not close enough with people where they feel comfortable keeping you accountable. Or if you're married, it means you just ignored them long enough they stopped trying. Somebody help me. That's the absolute truth. The best thing you can do in marriage is solicit the feedback from your spouse on a regular basis and accept it humbly without any kind of defensiveness. Somebody help me. It's the truth. Here's the fourth indicator of worldly sorrow. Justifying your sin instead of owning your sin. Look at verse 21. It's a special type of justification that Saul uses. Verse 21. But the people took of the spoil. He saw still talking. Sheep and oxen, the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed. Watch this. To sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. Justification is making excuses. But here's Saul, here's Saul justif- here's his justification. The end justifies the means. How do I get that? Look at the last phrase of 21. To sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. Here's what Saul's saying. Okay, Samuel, I know I should have killed all the spoil. I know I should have killed the livestock. I should have killed Agag. I get that, but come on, didn't you see the offering that we did? So, so here's, here's what he's doing. Instead of just owning up to his sin, he actually justifies his sin by trying to act spiritual about it. By putting a spiritual twist on the backside of his explanation to make him feel better about it. And we do the same thing. When we're confronted about our sin, here's what it say, if not out loud, in our heart. Well, God knows my heart. At least I'm trying my best. I'm not ever perfect. I just mess up sometimes. I know I'm a sinner, but we're all sinners. Oh, I know there's drunkenness there. I know there's impurities there. But the end justifies the means because I'm there to be salt and light and to show them that I still love them. Oh, I know I yelled at my kids. I know I got angry, but you need to know it was righteous indignation. I just care about them. And that's why I'm so passionate and even get angry sometimes. I just really care about them. I know I probably should have been at church and I've laid out a while, but listen, I'm just, I'm giving the temple of God a rest. I don't want to burn out, you know. Churches in America are doing this as well. 
Justifying worldliness and shallowness? Because after all, we're reaching people, right? So, so we're just going to do whatever we need to do, even outside of the bounds of, of, of the Holy Scripture, because it's working, right? You can soothe your conscience all day long by attaching God's name to your sin, but at the end of the day, there is no viable justification for sin. Now look what Samuel said in verse 22. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? He straight up told him to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. Hey, listen, King Saul, and listen, every Christian under the sound of my voice. You might do this and this and this and this for the Lord to justify your own sin. But you know what God really wants from you? 100% obedience. Oh, he wants you to give. He wants you to pray. He wants you to serve. He wants you to attend in church. He wants you to use your gifts for, for, for him. He, he wants you to get in a connection group. He wants you to commit. He wants you to be at Sunday night service. He wants all of those things from you. But more than all of those things, he wants your heart. He wants you simply to love him. He wants you to do everything he tells you to do. Obedience is foundational to the Christian life. And you cannot justify disobedience by the fact that you do this and this and this and this. I just don't do that. You can't do that. That is worldly sorrow. And it's not going to end well. Here's the last indicator of worldly sorrow. And this is a big one. Sorrowing over the consequences of your sin instead of sorrowing over your choice to sin. And this is what King Saul did. Look at verse 24. And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned. It's the first time he said it. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, I pray thee, pardon my sin. Turn again with me that I may worship the Lord. Now, look up here. I want to reason with you for a second. Saul is all of a sudden remorseful. I mean, Samuel confronted him when all the way back in verse 13. And it took him all this time, 10 full verses. To actually say, I have sinned, he's already justified, he's already minimized, he's already denied, he's already shifted the blame. But all of a sudden now, he wants to be reversal. What, what triggered this? Why is all of a sudden he's sorry? Well, look at verse 23. The end of verse 23. Because thou hast rejected, Samuel's talking to him. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. You know what changed? When Samuel told him, you've lost your throne. You've lost your position. You've lost your power. Your children will not take your place. The kingship of Israel will not be under the rule of King Saul and his family any longer. You'll be able to live out your days as king, but Jonathan will not be the next king because of your sin. And all of a sudden, you know, you know what he did? He, he literally got on his knees. King Saul did. All of a sudden, he's sorry. Like, oh, Samuel's serious. You've been there, right, Brother Kay? Leading students. When they, when they stand to lose something, that's when all of a sudden they get sorry. And look, look what King Saul did in, in, in verse number 26. Go to verse number 26. And Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned about to go away, he laid hold upon the skirt of his mantle, and it rent. He literally tore Samuel's skirt, and Samuel's like, okay, you, you want to do that? I'll just turn around and use this as a sermon. This is an object lesson. Verse 28, and Samuel said unto him, the Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from me this day, just like you rent my skirt, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than 
thou. And also the strength of Israel not lie nor repent, for he's not a man that he should repent. Then he said, I have sinned. This is Saul talking. Okay, I've sinned. Yet honor me now. I pray thee for the elders of my people and for Israel. Turn again with me that I may worship the Lord thy God. So Samuel turned again after Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. It's amazing how serious Saul got. How penitent he got. How contrite he got. How, how much he was willing to confess his sin when he stood to lose something. Here's the problem with Saul. He cared more about losing his kingdom than sinning against his king. He cared more about losing his kingdom than sinning against his king. And here's what I found. It's when a spouse hears from their spouse, I'm done. Now they're sorry. It's when a young person hears from from their parents, give me the keys. Now they're sorry. It's when an employee hears their boss say, you're fired. Now they're sorry. It's when somebody hears the judge says you're guilty. Now they're sorry. It's when the coach says you're off the team. Now we're sorry. All of a sudden we want to change. But if you're only sorry when your kingdom is threatened, you're only sorry about the consequences and not sorry about your choice to sin against a thrice holy God. And that's worldly sorrow. Joseph told Potiphar's wife, I will not lay with you. I will not have sex with you, even though I could do it and get away with it. And here's why. It's great wickedness against my God. See, he had a fear of God. And if the only reason you'll get rid of your agag is because you're afraid of getting caught, or you're afraid of the consequences, would you hear me please? You will return back to your agag pretty soon. I've seen it over and over and over and over. People who come to an altar tell God they're sorry. And in two or three weeks, they have picked the Agag back up again. And the only thing I can come back to is that they were more sorry about losing their kingdom than sinning against their king. This didn't end with King Saul. My mind went to a president of the United States of America who was caught red-handed in an affair. And his instant response was this, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Anybody old enough to remember that? And then he finally admitted when they convinced her that they would give her immunity, Monica Lewinsky, for her her, uh, witness in trial. And that's when he came out. But I I got it in my notes. I, I could quote to you. The the first apology he gave was pathetic. It was pathetic. And then when when they got serious about impeaching President Clinton, it's it's like it's picturesque of of 1 Samuel 15. Because when he stood to lose his kingdom, listen, he he said what what he did. He called it sin for the very first time. I quote, I know that many have said that in my first apology, I was not contrite enough. I don't think there's a fancy way to say that I have sinned. It is important to me that everyone know that the sorrow I feel is genuine. And then he went on to get spiritual when he talked about being repentant and having what the Bible calls, literally he he quoted the Bible, having a broken spirit. 
I'm not throwing shade on anybody in particular. It's a great illustration. Was he sorry? I have no idea. Here's what I know. He didn't call it sin. And he didn't get serious about it until his kingdom was threatened. And see, we do the same thing, but in a much smaller scale. And I would urge you, when you're confronted with your sin, it is not about the consequences. The sorrow, if it's godly, is about how you're hurting your relationship with your heavenly father. That's what it's about. So ask yourself this question. What kind of sorry are you? Have you seen yourself at all in King Saul tonight? Denial? Shifting of blame? Minimizing? Justifying? Sorry about losing your kingdom or sinning against your king? The only hope of being victorious in the long term over your agag is when you will first demonstrate godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Lord, help us to get serious about our agag enough to say the worldly sorrow is not going to happen this time. Now, I want you to come to the altar. The altars, frankly, should be filled tonight. I want you to come to an altar. But when you come to an altar, it's not just about going through the motions to soothe your conscience. It's about saying, God, I have sinned and done great wickedness against you. And give me the humility and faith to follow through on getting rid of my ego. How do I do that? Next week, I'm going to tell you. Because at some point, we got to get practical. And I'm going to show you what Samuel did to get rid of King Agag. And I'm going to tell you, it's gruesome. Took his sword out and literally hewed him to pieces. The King James Version says. Diced him up. And he gives us a picture of how Saul should have dealt with him in the first place. And he gives us kind of a how-to lesson of what we're supposed to do in making radical changes to hew our own sin and Agags and Amalekites into pieces. But before that ever starts, we have to exhibit godly sorrow. Lord, help us. Stand to your feet. Every head bowed and every eye.